Welcome, we're the Grounded Space Cadets. We can get low spacey, but our feet are firmly planted on the ground. Join us as we navigate all things spiritual, psychological, and astrological. Okay, space babies, suits on, all systems go. Welcome back, Space Babies! Hi, Space Babies. We are the Grounded Space Cadets. Yes, we are. I am Marcella. And I am Brittany. And we are here to bring you part two of spirituality and Buddhism. Today we will be covering the Noble Eightfold Path. Yes. Last week we talked about the four noble truths, which are the truths that the Buddha discovered after he become became an awakened one and these four noble truths include the truth of suffering which is dukkha to live is to suffer um suffering is ever present to be alive and how we deal with it is really what determines our our karma Absolutely. And if you really want to get deeper into this, we do invite you to go back, listen to part one of Buddhism and spirituality. We dive really deep into the first three noble truths. Mm -hmm. We really talk about what suffering means in the context of Buddhism. It's it's more of, like you said, that imperfect wheel. It's more of discontentment, unsatisfaction, dissatisfaction, I should say. Yes, like it's normal to experience suffering when something cataclysmic happens and something major happens. Like I mentioned in the first episode, kind of nonchalantly, like there will always be murder, there will always be famine, there will always be like these great injustices, which there are things we can do to help prevent those. But what the Buddha is really trying to get at is that like our everyday suffering um, that is really of our own making. Mm -hmm. And that is something that we can work on. And I also don't want to imply that he wasn't discussing ending suffering in regards to those major traumatic events because mm-hmm. um, those are those occur in our human experience. Um, and I really liked, well, first off, this is coming to my mind because I've been really upset lately over the last few weeks, especially with the mass shooting in Nashville at an elementary school and... Um, I've just been frustrated by political inaction and how politicians just offer prayer and thoughts. And I was so mad. I I was saying to myself, like, that's not going to help. Religion's not going to save us. Like, Buddhism isn't going to save us. Like, we need actual action. action. And then I read, I was reading The Heart of the Buddha's Teaching, Transforming Suffering into Peace, Joy, and Liberation by Thich Nhat Hanh. And this passage came to me in that moment and I just had a total paradigm shift. And he says, we are exposed to invasions of all kinds, images, sounds, smells, touch, and ideas. And many of these feed the craving, violence, fear, and despair in us. The Buddha advised us to post a sentinel namely mindfulness, at each of our sense doors to protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. Use your Buddha eyes to look at each nutriment you are about to ingest. And what he means by nutriment is like whatever we are consuming, whether it's visually, mentally, Mm -hmm. um, whether we're eating something or speaking something or feeling something. Mm -hmm. If you see that it, it is toxic, refuse to look at it, listen to it, taste it, or touch it. Ingest only what you are certain is safe. Now, when I read this, I was like, well, that means turning a blind eye to suffering, right? And not doing anything about it. But that's that's not really what he's getting at here. Mm -hmm. As he goes on to say, we must we must come together as individuals, families, cities and a nation to discuss strategies of self-protection and survival to get out of the dangerous situation we are in. The practice of mindfulness has to be collective. And that's where religion is so powerful. Right. And that's where I paused. I was like, you know what? The prayers do matter. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I've, I've had personal experience in prayer groups mm-hmm. where you could feel the shift in, in the energy in the room, mm-hmm. right? Like, so I, prayers do matter. But what I was frustrated with is that signal of we're not going to do anything about it from politicians when we pay them to do things. Exactly. To, to that's your us. job. Yeah. So I do think um, religion spirituality, especially Buddhism, if we all came together and practiced mindfulness, even prayer, um, it really can make a difference in our collective experience of suffering. 
Well, that just brings me to the Viktor Frankl quote that mm-hmm. I wanted to bring in because this ties into mindfulness, mindfulness, which is our fourth noble truth mm-hmm. and going into the eightfold path, right? Viktor Frankl, between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. And in that space lies our freedom and power to choose our responses. In our response lies our growth mm-hmm. and our freedom. Yeah. And I think if we connect that message that you just read with this, you know, at the end of the day, we have a choice. Mm -hmm. We do have a choice. And even though we do pay these politicians to represent us as a collective, as a collective, we have a responsibility to take ownership of what's going on and say, they are not doing their job as we elected them to, because Mm -hmm. they told us during election season, you are going to represent me in these situations. Mm-hmm. You're dropping the ball, man. You're not represent, representing me how you said you were. Mm-hmm. As a collective, we hired them. Mm-hmm. We need to come together and realize we have a choice. Mm-hmm. We do have a choice, and that's where the collective is so powerful. And is that as a collective, we start using our Buddha eyes, mm-hmm. right? Which is Buddha is not a person. Buddha is an existence. It's a consciousness, mm-hmm. right? It's a, it's a, a level of interdimensional consciousness that we can't even fathom in our human existence but it exists and it's Mm -hmm. there for us to tap into and i feel like buddha left us a little bit of that path to achieve buddha mindset yeah right it's not easy yeah no it it, i mean it looks very simple as we lay it out the eight steps i'm like oh it sounds so easy but it's really not because of what practice well because of what victor frankel brings up mm-hmm. is that stimulus and response so many mm-hmm. of us are so reactive yes that we are unaware of that time between the stimulation and the reactivity mm-hmm. but it's there and i that's another goal or um a premise of buddhism is about slowing down mm-hmm. and Thich Nhat Hanh, he talks about how you know for us to even function or to get to the place where we can be um, mindful, we have to practice slowing down. Mm -hmm. We have, for us to even heal, um, we have to stop, calm ourselves, rest, and meditation, however you practice meditation, because there's different ways of doing it other than just sitting, Mm -hmm. um, that is a a way of slowing down the thoughts, slowing down the reactivity so it's more responsiveness and reactivity. And if you talk to any athlete or anybody that does anything really, really, really well, right, they have all these conditioned muscle memory responses. The best example are all those kids that can solve a Rubik's Cube in who knows point how many seconds. Mm It's, it's just more of that conditioning, right? But in their mind, they've slowed down things so much mm-hmm. that to us it looks like it's point something seconds. In their mm-hmm. mind, it's not. Mm-hmm. In their mind, it's moving slower than anything that we can even fathom. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we see that manifested, right? Imagine interpreting that point nine seconds of solving a Rubik's Cube into your practice of... I'm not going to get reactive in this moment. I have 0.9 seconds to make a decision. Am I going to say, lash out? Or am I going to go through my right viewpoint, my right thought, my right speech, my right lifestyle, and go through the the beautiful eightfold path that is Mm -hmm. very so simply. And I can do that in a 0.9 however seconds and say I choose not to react. Yeah. I'm going to keep this and then maybe listen, listen more than I'm speaking, right? And I think before we get into that, um, we tried recording this a moment ago and we had some technical glitches kind of happen. And Brittany was so beautifully in the moment of already getting into flow. Um, We wanted to clarify something that came up in the last episode. yeah. Um, Because it's very powerful. And it ties into the eightfold yes very much so because you know i have a trouble with the english language i've said it before and so sometimes i i may say like i said detachment when i meant Mm non-attachment and detachment Mm -hmm. creates polarities which buddhism does so beautifully of not doing Mm -hmm. there are no polarities within the buddhism religion it's more of creating the middle ground right, right? right. the beautiful middle ground yes yeah, so you're explaining it so beautifully the before. eightfold path another name for it is the middle way and um within the framework of buddhism and the concept of suffering in buddhism like we suffer because we go to these extremes so if we think of non-attachment on 
um, a spectrum, non-attachment is central. To the left, we have attachment, and to the right, we have detachment. And so the problem with using the word detachment is that it has that connotation that we are spiritually bypassing the suffering or that we're ignoring it or we're like escaping from it by, you know, there's all sorts of ways to escape things, mm-hmm. right? Intoxicants, um, even meditation mm-hmm. can be a form of mm-hmm. escapism. So Absolutely. it's like we even have to be mindful of our own practice can be because if we are practicing to escape certain situations or feelings, then we've gone to the the right and we are in detachment. And now on the left, um, I may have gotten my directions mixed up, but <laughs> on the other side is attachment. And attachment is when we cling. We cling too much to a certain idea, mm-hmm. to a concept. Um, we've talked about it in past episodes that um, one of the things about humans is that we want to stay consistent with who we think we are. Mm-hmm. And that's a form of attachment. It is. Right? Like if we are, we refuse to take opportunities or to change and grow in certain directions because we are so attached to who we think we should be, mm-hmm. um, that's attachment. It's mm-hmm. not, and it's going to cause suffering. It is going to cause It's going to cause suffering. Mm-hmm. And so we want non-attachment where we become the observer of what is happening, of our reality Correct. inside the mind and outside the mind. And it's only in those moments of non-attachment can we truly become the observer where you're just seeing what thoughts are kind of coming through, not attaching yourself to anyone, right? Which means I'm not going to get angry because this thought just came in. I'm not going to get sad because this th- It's more of just seeing what's coming through, experiencing it. You definitely want to experience it. That's part of being in the middle ground is not just observing it, but letting it come into your experience. But then learning about, and I said releasing in the last episode, which you know very much correlates to detaching, and that's not what I meant. It's more of holding, experiencing, and then knowing when it's time to say, I've gotten the lesson, I know what I have to do, now it's time to either take action, or now it's time to completely say, that does not pertain to me. Yeah, and I think the idea of releasing, um, there's nothing wrong with like feeling to like need a release, but I think when you are in non-attachment, when you are an observer to yourself and what's happening around you, you don't really feel the need to release to, like, anything. Release anything right. Because it's not that you're detached from it, but you just see it for what it really is. Right. You know, and um, even just saying it in that way, it seems kind of like, uh, amorphous and hard to hold on to but but when well, you see it for what it is mm-hmm. right you know i've heard this before see it for what it is not more than it is yeah right yeah it's not worse than it is it yeah. just is it's bad a lot of us like to create narratives in our minds or over romanticize things <laughs> or assumptions about what's happening i mean one thing i have learned is that um just never assume. Right. Like, you really should just not assume what's going on. Ever. Because humans are very complex animals. Mm-hmm. And people do things, say things, um, for very different reasons than what we assume most of the time. Exactly. And so um, when we create those narratives in our mind, um, when we romanticize things, we're usually, I think, when we're talking about romanticizing things, like we're oh, we're getting into the attachment area, right? Exactly. Like, like we mm-hmm. we have this idea of like how the other person should be responding to mm-hmm. us, and yada yada yada. And so the so middle it creates, way it creates delusion. Yes. Yeah. Right. It, Which we sure talked about suffering delusion. attached to delusion yeah. last yeah. week, and, and also last that episode. desire, right? Like that excessive desire, that excessive desire, and clinging to because desire. desire is good, right? But we talked about unhealthy, excessive desire yeah. versus healthy desire. Yeah. You want to think of it on that that range, that spectrum of mm-hmm. attachment one side, detachment on the other. Non attachment is central; it's the middle way. Mm-hmm. And so we get into um, the noble eightfold path. This is the fourth noble truth. Um, the framework that I'm using is from Alan Pito's Buddhism in Ten Steps: A Practical and Easy way to understand um, Buddhism. And my reference comes from Master Ko, who's my meditation teacher on the subject. Okay. And so there are eight points. Um, They all talk about, they use the word right, meaning the right direction. And so I feel like we can easily attach a value to right. I think in the Western concept of right versus wrong Mm -hmm. idea Mm -hmm. which is why it gets a little bit 
I think Buddhism gets a bad rap because they're like, oh, they think they know everything. It comes off as very moralistic, right? Well, because right? even when I mentioned to someone what we were recording our episode on last, uh, the last one on the four noble truths, and mm-hmm. it's like the the four truths on how to end suffering. They're like, oh, anybody who attached truths to anything, that's all, that's religion, isn't it? And I'm just like, okay, it's our interpretation in the Western yeah. understanding of the right. word truth, of the word right. Whereas if we get into this, the what was the language? I'm sorry. Um, Sanskrit? Sanskrit mm-hmm. of it. It doesn't even mean that. No, and I think the the term right, for instance, the first one is right view. The, what comes to mind is like righteous view, right? right. Like um, like your highest self, right. the highest ability of this outcome. Like We kind of have, we have a negative connotation of righteousness. We do. Though here in the West. We do. It doesn't have to be taken that way, but um, we do tend to like view it negatively. But like once you start understanding what it's coming from, so it's the right viewpoint or an accurate perception, right? Which means you're going to use careful observation and you're going to use careful interpretation. Mm-hmm. So this obviously invites a lot of authority, the, yeah. the, the, the eightfold path. Yeah. Well, wait, before you get into right view, let's just say that there are eight categories. These are not like step by step by step. They they're, they kind of all, um, they can coexist at the same time. Um, they kind of, they're all interdependent. So right. it's not like a checklist like, oh, I need to have right view. Check, mm-hmm. I got that. Oh, I need to have right thinking. Check, I got that. They all kind of depend on each other. Right. So the, the first one is right view or right... Do you have right perception on I yours? I have right viewpoint or accurate perception. Okay, right view or right perception. The second one is right thinking or right thoughts. Mm-hmm. The third one is right speech. The fourth one is right action. Or behavior. Or behavior. Um, the next one is right livelihood. I have lifestyle. Okay. Then we have right effort or right diligence. I have spiritual effort or endeavor. Okay. And then I have right mindfulness. Awareness. Awareness. And the last one is right meditation or right concentration. Oneness. And you have oneness. So interesting. That's Master Co. Mm-hmm. How interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's quite different from um, a lot of the traditional mm-hmm. Buddhist mm-hmm. um, explanations of the Eightfold Path. Oneness is the last one instead well, of right well, meditation. Well, once one, once he explains oneness, he connects that to meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, I just, I liked, I wrote down oneness, but he does, you know, bring in meditation as part of right meditation. Mm-hmm. I just connect, me personally connect with oneness because that's what I do achieve in that moment. I do achieve that moment of oneness, even though in Buddhism you're not attaching to self. <laughs> yeah. There's no self. But we've talked about how that's, how it's paradoxical. It is. The more you practice non-attachment, like, the closer you do feel to your authentic self. Right, because I feel like this is helping us become non-attached to our human biological Mm -hmm. existence, which attaches us to suffering, Mm -hmm. versus the eighth one, right oneness meditation, Allowing us to go deeper into our interdimensional interdimensionality of existence, where mm-hmm. I, you're right, this isn't me. Mm-hmm. This is not the human me anymore. This is something beyond my even comprehension that mm-hmm. even Buddhism doesn't explore. Let's just admit yeah. it. Yeah. They don't explore that because it doesn't matter. Yeah, it didn't. I mean, <laughs> like people would go up to Buddha and ask them about God and stuff like that, and he's like, I'm not an authority on that. Like, why even discuss those things? Mm-hmm. Because it's not going to resolve our suffering. It's not going to start the karmic actions. It's not going to stop samsara. Our work is it's here. here. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, it's here. And that's one thing we picked up from Christianity. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing we're picking up from Buddhism is that the work to be done is during this lifetime, during our this existence. iteration of our life. And at the end of the day, that's why we wanted to do these episodes on the different practices around the world, or on the different religions, especially the major religions, because we wanted to find those unifying things, those, yeah, unifying, unifying principles, principles that kind of connect um, spirituality and just like the human dimension of spirituality, right? Like those universal commonalities exactly so your right view what did you say about your right view again can you repeat it um i have right view or accurate perception which you know 
diving more into the explanation is understanding that it's bringing on authority to use careful observation and careful interpretation of what's going on around us. Mm. And most of the time we're so reactive, we don't take that moment to slow down and make sure, like you said, we jump into assumption, right? And if you're jumping to assumption, are you looking at it from the right observation right. or right. from are you carefully observing it and are you interpreting it correctly right. if you're just triggered, if you're just responsive? Yeah. And so, you know, like you said, this kind of brings you back into take a breath to slow down. Yeah. And before I get responsive, am I assuming? Yeah. And I like what Thich Nhat Hanh, he brings up in the book I've been reading, how, you know, our, our view, our perception, it's so subjective because we are filtering reality through our sense organs, Correct. right? And so our senses naturally carry with them the errors of subjectivity. Mm-hmm. And that's not inherently wrong. Mm-mm. You know, it's just an awareness of recognizing that, oh, I might not be interpreting this situation as it truly is, right? And so taking yes. that time to slow down, yes. slowing down or creating space between the stimulus and response yes, is what helps us view reality the way it actually is. I have... Mm-hmm. Do you want to say something? I was just going to say, I have like a very human experience to connect to that. Every month I have to remind myself I can't trust the way I see things right now during the time of the month where Mother Nature decides to mm-hmm. shed mm-hmm. parts of my like body. Where we have a fluctuation of hormones that affect the way So we I do have to things. try yeah. myself. Do not trust the way you see things right now. Do not trust the way you feel right now. Do not trust the way you see yourself right now. Mm-hmm. And I have to have those conversations, and that allows me to slow down. Yeah. And I think when you say do not trust the way you perceive things right now, it's not necessarily that you don't trust your own your own mental faculties, but it's like, oh, my perception is skewed right now. It's almost like I am more trusting, right? Because I'm allowing my authority to be like, hey, use your authority right now to realize this isn't the right perception of how you're taking this in. Yeah, and it's temporary. Very temporary. that's, That's another thing of Buddhism that we haven't really talked about, but it's that temporality like everything is temporary and that's why we don't want to have attachment or detachment because everything is temporary and things are constantly changing and in flux and if you attach to things to how we I mean what you brought up Marcella is totally what I've been experiencing too because with women especially especially now that we're getting a little bit older and like cycles are changing um we're getting like, closer to the body decade. my body is, is doing weird things now we're like both like scratching ourselves just, like I like look like, myself at the I'm, I'm just like what body what are you doing like what is happening now and it's like oh you're changing you're always changing you're mm-hmm. always changing it Constantly. never stays the same and so a lot of my suffering about my body image and we've talked about this a bunch of times if you haven't listened to season one body dysmorphia and oh, spirituality you should listen to it but oh and the Sedona episode too and then um but you know I have an attachment to how I think I want or to how I want to look I want to I want to look the way I did 10 years ago or whatnot and that mm-hmm. that's an attachment mm-hmm. and that's going to cause suffering right because in reality my body's not going to ever go back to that time right I mean I can get close to it but it's never going to be like that ever especially again. because you're in a space where your body needs different things now you right. it doesn't need the things it needed 10 years ago it needs new things right. it needs different right. things and um you know we invite you to listen to the last episode because we talked about a lot of how, you know, part of life is the fact that it, it, the, the only thing that's permanent is the fact that there is change. Change, yeah. Right? So law of change, consistent. law of cycles, and the law of consequences. That's the only thing you can trust. Yeah. So what I have for right view is the ability to have the right concepts and right ideas that lead away from delusion mm-hmm. and wrong views. Understanding the nature and cause of suffering and the mm-hmm. method of release. And so it's understanding that like, oh yeah, things are always changing. Right. And I can't like, if I'm holding on to how I think things should be, um, it's in the process of transformation all the time. Mm-hmm. And so that causes suffering. Now that we have an understanding of the nature and cause of suffering, there's something we can do about it. And so we'll move on to right thinking um, I have here keeping thoughts in accord with Buddha's Dharma which is Buddha's law this is the speech in your mind therefore you want to ensure your thoughts align with the right view it's also a willingness to begin renouncing 
attachment and cultivating compassion. Mm-hmm. Cultivating compassion. I, I can't tell you how often I had to practice this this past week. Right thinking. Yeah, and cultivating compassion for myself. Yes. Right, and like reframing things. Um, because those old patterns come up, well, right? In or, well, and, and like you said, everything's connected, right? Everything's intertwined within mm-hmm. the, the the eightfold path because right. you can't have the right thoughts if you don't have the right viewpoint. Right, right. So it's it's like always reminding yourself, okay, and as you're like, okay, maybe I'm establishing the right viewpoint, but these thoughts don't quite match up with that viewpoint. So now you get to, right, kind of... Yeah balance yourself there and and right view and right thinking they are they're the wisdom piece to the noble noble eightfold path Mm -hmm. like we we all have the capacity to be wise um at any age really Mm -hmm. if we practice right view and right thinking i think it gets easier with age but um that's definitely um part of wisdom i know you brought it up in the no the noble um, the Four Noble Truths, how the Eightfold Path is broken down to three components of mm-hmm. wisdom, morality. I was just morality. looking for that I note. know. <laughs> That's why I have it here in the notes. Wisdom, morality, and discipline yes. or meditation. Yes. And so the first two, right view and right thinking, those are the categories of wisdom. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on right thinking? Um, well, it was just basically going back to that, right? Because it attaches itself to that wisdom piece of what the four noble truth really is um and it's just a reminder of review that as you're going through these because i because we're preparing for this i kind of had to stop myself and be like am i thinking this correctly am i viewing this correctly like for the last two weeks i've been doing this and that question alone like that's watering the wholesome seeds that, that they talk about in Buddhism. Yes. Unwholesome seeds and wholesome seeds in our mind, like the roots in our mind mm-hmm. and like watering the wholesome seeds. It's like just being able or just having the awareness to ask yourself, like, am I thinking correctly about this? Is this way of thinking helping me or is it causing harm in my mind? And, and something I wanted to mention before we even started talking about the Eightfold Path is putting yourself... We did kind of mention it right in the observer mindset. You are the observer. You're not attached to an outcome. You're not attached to a situation. Nothing's happening to you in essence. As you become the observer, you you, you have to literally ask yourself, who is the observer? Who is the observer in this moment? Mm -hmm. It's not the body. It's not the mind. Mm -hmm. It's not the emotions. The movement isn't observing anything. Who is the observer? I don't know. Who is the observer? That's the question, too. <laughs> There's no right answer to that is what I'm saying. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought Who this was is, a riddle. It was not. <laughs> those, are the, those are the questions that pose when you start slowing down yeah. and you sit in meditation. And that's how I've learned to, inter- to integrate the Eightfold Path into my life is first say, Marcella, this isn't happening to you. Mm-hmm. So now Marcella is the observer but who is marcella marcella is not the body mm-hmm. this body physically is not marcella mm-hmm. right it's my biological organism it's it's the it's the puppet that i get to use in this three-dimensional reality mm-hmm. so who's the hand in the puppet mm-hmm. is it the thoughts no the thoughts don't move the body so who creates the thoughts that make the body move I create the thoughts that make the body move. So who is I? I don't know. Who is the I? So those are the questions in Buddhism that they really pose. Who is the I? To start detaching from the physical I. You use the word detaching. Sorry. To become non-attached to the physical. And I told her to do that. Mm-hmm. To use, to put yourself in the non-attached version that mm-hmm. Marcella is not this body. So now that beco- I be- can become the observer of yeah. what Marcella is doing. Yeah. Now I can become the observer of what is being observed. Mm-hmm. Now Marcella, the observer, is also observing Marcella. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, if that's, that reminds me of, you know, we talked about it in the first episode, the concept of non-self, mm-hmm. how you know there's no such thing as a permanent or independent self including the soul and that you know we're all interdependent on each other right 
Um, and so when you put yourself in that observer position, I think what I'm getting from what you're describing is that you take your subjectivity out of yes. the the frame of reference. Yes. Right? Like, you, you begin to see, first off, your part mm-hmm. in the situation. Mm-hmm. How you're contributing. It's like, uh, now situation. I'm watching a movie of myself. Mm-hmm. I'm literally observing myself being myself. Mm-hmm. So it's becoming the observer and then... Now, what are you observing? Well, I'm observing myself. But are you observing yourself? No, I'm not observing myself. I'm observing my biological meat soup. Mm -hmm. That sounds really trippy. It sounds very trippy. But I don't know if I, I don't think I experience it that way. I don't know. What you're saying is um, making me, making me question. Like, I don't, I'm trying to think like, how do I feel? What do I, I guess I don't feel anything when I'm put, when I put myself in the, that's what it is. Okay, mm-hmm. it just came to me. Mm-hmm. When I am in the observer position, I'm just completely present. Like yes. I'm not Thank I'm you. not mm-hmm. I'm not a I'm not attending to how I'm feeling. I'm not attending to like what I'm thinking or the thoughts that are being generated as a reacti- reactivity or response to the situation. I am just like fully present in the moment and it's a it's a really nice feeling, right? Yes. Like it's just you're just there. That's and what it, I'm it's, trying to say. It's, it's just such a it's a it's a hard way. It's a very um, ineffable experience. Like it's not really something that language right can really meet or like support mm-hmm. or communicate. It's an experience. It's an experience. Which is like yeah. those are the only two ways I've learned to explain it. By like, who am I observing? Or who is the observer and then who am I observing? And it's that conundrum. Mm -hmm. And I sit with that in meditation, Mm -hmm. right? I am the soul. Mm -hmm. I am Marcella. Because Mm -hmm. even though this comes from my meditation teacher, he's not Buddhist. Mm -hmm. He pulls from those different practices. I apologize. I forgot to turn my notifications off. He pulls from different practices himself, Mm -hmm. right? Because he does believe in the soul. My meditation teacher does believe in the soul. Yeah, which is not a concept in Buddhism. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I do believe in the soul based on the frequency and the interdimensionality that you and I have talked about. Yeah. That's where I vibe, yeah. right? And, and his interpretation of the soul vibes with that for me because it talks about karmic action. Mm-hmm. And he does talk about how your soul intertwines into and how those karmic actions come back with you. Mm-hmm ties into something of the other stuff that we've been hearing from other people and what you and I have been discussing. So it very much like right now, right now in the moment in time that I'm in, it resonates. Yeah. So it's like, even though Buddhism tells me I don't have, they believe they don't have a soul, I still am attaching myself to Marcella's soul, Mm -hmm. which isn't Marcella. Mm -hmm. I don't know who this soul is, Mm -hmm. right? But I can call it the observer Mm -hmm. and I can now say that that observer the soul is now observing this biological meat soup mm-hmm. and now i can have non-attachment to those emotions that marcella is feeling now there's non-attachment are you observing yourself because it makes it the way you're describing it it sounds like you're describing like um what is called what's called um, an out-of-body experience like when you have an out-of-body experience like you actually like can see yourself in your meat I think, too. Yeah, I think like that's what I experience when I'm like in meditation going through the Eightfold Path. But, no, but in everyday life where we're supposed to be practicing these things, not just in meditation, like the purpose of like practicing the observer so that way we're actually, when we are in interactions with others mm-hmm. that can trigger us mm-hmm. or influence us in certain ways is to be the observer. Like, do you have that out of a body experience observer point of view when you're socializing with other people i wouldn't call it out of body because i'm actually very present yeah but i am more observing where i've learned not to not to attach to others reactions and emotions in the moment that allows me to become very uh, i'm trying to find another word other than observer yeah (laughs) like a spectator yeah. But I'm still physically there. I'm still physically experienced at all because right. I'm not spiritually bypassing my life. Right. I'm still very much there. Mm. Right. I'm not detaching. Cause to me, out-of-body experience is more of like going towards that detachment side of the spectrum where I'm not detached from my body. It's more of that observer of the thoughts, observer of the emotions, observer of the 
of how these thoughts now move this biological being. Mm -hmm. And now when I can be an observer of it, I'm very present mm -hmm. because in the moment I'm observing what is causing this meat suit, I don't want to say it that way, this biological being to react. Mm -hmm. I'm observing what thoughts are starting to creep up. And then I can say, is this the right speech that I want to project? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so it's more of, that's how I see myself in that non-attachment era is not having an out-of-body experience, but more of like in that instant, being able to meditate and become so present because we know that the presence of now is meditation. Mm -hmm. So it's like I'm meditating all the time. Yeah. I'm just so present in the moment. It doesn't happen every time, you guys. It's still a work in progress. Yeah. You know, but when I can be so present that I can just be the observer of what what is triggering these emotions. Oh, it's the situation. And it's the fact that I interpreted the situation this way that's causing me to feel this way. Mm -hmm. And I very much saw that happen this week. And I was able to, after a few days of sitting with it, do I have the right viewpoint? Do I have the right thinking? Have I been taking the right action, which we'll get to into a little bit? And then I was like, I have now the right speech to communicate. And yeah. I was able to communicate my needs in a very powerful way where it didn't make the person feel like they caused it. Or that they were being attacked. I took or ownership yeah. of how I felt, but I just mentioned how it was the circumstances surrounding me mm -hmm. that caused my this to come up and now these are the needs that I need to be and met. that is wise action right there right so right view and right thinking that falls under the category of wisdom you brought up right speech and right action which falls under the category of like conduct behavior morality and there's three there's right speech we could have right speech that's an actionable thing that we do right action and right livelihood mm -hmm. so right speech is ensuring your verbal karma karma are, are your actions your verbal karma consists of words of truth compassion praise and altruism mm -hmm. it's also using language impeccably avoiding lying slander and verbal violence yeah, I just have like, you know, ask yourself, is it true? Is it kind and not hurtful? Is it useful and is it necessary? Is it helpful to someone? Yeah. Like just little tr little questions you can ask yourself and then you say, no, okay, I don't need to say that. Yeah. I thought the verbal violence, like that really stood out to mm -hmm. me because how often mm -hmm. are we like verbally, not just with other people, but how often are we like verbally violent with ourselves? With ourselves. Right? Exactly. Yeah, and, so, and that like, creates that creates you're not being karmic, kind to yourself that creates karmic action mm -hmm. and karma that you know we we often think that like when we do bad things to other people that's karma you know like you're gonna get that it's gonna come back to you it's karma but the way we treat ourselves and the way we speak to ourselves also produces karma well that's what i have line like three triple underlined under right action when i was taking notes um forgiveness yeah because and compassion, cultivating compassion and forgiveness. Exactly. Right? Because right action is not just taking appropriate action. Because he uses this example. Killing versus murdering. Mm -hmm. Someone's coming at you. Mm -hmm. It's you or them. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be held. Like, it's okay to kill that person. It's okay to protect yourself. It's okay to protect yeah. yourself. Now, that person's just nonchalantly living their life and enjoying life. I'm just going to go cut their throat. Mm -hmm. that's a different story still their stuff so whatever, yeah. you know that's why people like well all that is not right action well let's look at the other things mm -hmm. Did, you know when it's right viewpoint when it's the right thinking when it's the the right livelihood maybe killing is the right action right now mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so then you know it's not hurtful to you or to others um not holding resentment but then i underline forgiveness a lot because this was huge for me when i reached my spirituality and why Buddhism really helped me heal so much. You know, I speak a lot about this and I'm going to continue to say it. You know, being molested by my stepfather, did, I didn't realize how much it had messed with me in my adulthood until I addressed it, until I decided to talk about it, until I decided to go to therapy about it, until I decided to do somatic healing, until I decided to work with my inner child who, was been, who had been molested. Mm -hmm. Like until I did all of that, which was what? Right viewpoint which was all that work was to achieve the right viewpoint, yeah. to then find all the right thinking, to then right find the right speech, to then communicate to those that I still needed to communicate, communicate that I had shut down my entire life. 
to then now live the life that I do because guess what? I did find forgiveness, Mm -hmm. but there's two parts to forgiveness. And we talked about it last week, right? It's the spiritual forgiveness that allows us to evolve as human beings, Mm -hmm. our spirit. But then there's exterior action that has to happen. I feel like I struggled with talking about with forgiveness last week, but now that I have a better, well, I have a better understanding of the range of non-attachment from attachment, non-attachment to detachment. It's like if we, we say that like forgiving releases the forgiver, right? Mm -hmm. From having to carry around all of the junk. Mm -hmm. And it's like when we are like, nobody should ever be forced to forgive anybody for anything. Like you have to come to that on your own, on your own terms, on your own time. Mm -hmm. But it's like when you do reach that point where you can forgive the person who transgressed against you, that moves you from attachment mm-hmm. to non-attachment. Correct. And it right? removes the suffering portion of right? it. Right. Because if you are holding on to that, to what happened to you in a way where nothing's really coming of it, mm-hmm. like you're not using it to... Uh, create or you're not metabolizing the emotions that occurred with that and you're Mm -hmm. just keeping it buried Mm -hmm. you're attaching to that suffering exactly right and there i mean no shame or blame on people but then that also attaches your identity right and and then attaches thoughts to it and then it attaches actions and then it attaches a lifestyle right that's not yours so forgiveness now i see forgiveness as moving from attachment to Mm non-attachment right Mm -hmm. and then taking accountability that's moving from detachment to non-attachment. Correct. Right? Like, yeah, I, I, I take like accountability mm-hmm. for the shit I did to you. Mm-hmm. You're no longer trying to escape from what happened. You're now taking ownership of it. Mm-hmm. And so you're moving from detachment to non-attachment. Mm-hmm. So now I see forgiveness within that that range of de- attachment, non-attachment, detachment. And how much that truly does serve me. Mm-hmm. I don't, if, if it helped them, great. But that's not the purpose of it. No, it's not for them. It's for you. It's right. for it's right. for this being that was suffering because of it, feeling like something was taken from me, feeling like something was done to me out of my control, out yeah. of my want. Right. How dare you cross that boundary? Right. Right. And then it's putting the exterior action of making sure I did speak about it. That mm-hmm. was right action for me, mm-hmm. speaking verbally to the family that decided to dismiss it, speaking verbally to all the people that maybe didn't really know what was going on. Right. And then it's part of the process, right, of like mm-hmm. metabolizing your experience and the emotions around it. And, and then so- I mentioned last week is, you know, depending on what you're forgiving for is also putting the right boundaries into place. That's right. also part of right action for yourself to protect yourself from future Situations, Right. And you brought up like harming others or killing others, like right action. You want to avoid harming people in that way. But if it's your life or theirs, like, of course, the right action is to protect your own life. And you typed killing, too. I did, too. Yeah. It will comes up a lot. It does. Um, And what I think is interesting about right action, it's like it's subjective, too. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm Like you right action requires you to be mindful of how you're feeling about what you're doing. Right. There's so many of Mm -hmm. us who continue to do a thing because it meets a certain need or a desire or a pleasure. And then after we do the thing, we feel terrible that we did it. Right. Right. Like anyone at our age who over drinks alcohol, it's like shit. Why, why did I do that? Why did I have? I'm never gonna do that again. Have a bottle of wine mm-hmm. on a work night. I feel like shit. You know, um, not that I do that anymore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just sometimes. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But no, I mean, like right action is, and it's what Thich Nhat Han was talking about, like taking in those nutrients. Like if you know it's gonna fuck with you, mm-hmm. if, if you know that it's gonna cause you suffering, um, don't ingest it. And it's not saying you don't ever have to do that thing. You shouldn't ever have to do that thing. It's just the middle way, like Mm -hmm. moderation, right? Mm -hmm. Now, that's very different than talking about addiction or alcoholism. Like that's that's a different category that it's a lot more nuanced and complex and layer. And I do think Buddhism could help with that. So much. But it's it's a lot more challenging for more more like your day to day. Yeah, someone suffering with Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. But yeah, it's like there's so many things that I do when it comes to like 
especially consuming things, mm-hmm. eating or drinking things. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, um, I'm going to feel bad after I do this. And it's mm-hmm. like, well, if I practice mindful eating, mm-hmm. how likely is it that I'm going to engage in that behavior that's going to make me feel bad? I'm exactly. going to be less likely, likely to engage in that behavior. And once again, like that right action doesn't imply um, perfection. Mm-hmm. Right, like it's not righteousness. Like Mm-mm. it's not about being perfect every time. The reason why we have eight these eightfold path, these different ways to achieving cessation of suffering, is because humans are complex. Humans mm-hmm. are complicated. We don't have to. There's nothing in here that says you have to be perfect all the time. Right. Right. I think the beauty of this is letting you know that no one is perfect. Yeah. Because perfection it would be attaching to an extreme. Right. Right, it's more of that non-attachment, the middle way, where in the middle way there is no perfection. In the middle mm-hmm. way, there's gonna be errors. In the middle way, there's gonna be things that aren't that great. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, just because a, a string on a guitar or on a stringed instrument is is tuned perfectly doesn't mean that it still can't easily go out of tune. Mm-hmm. And like you strum it a few times, it goes out of tune. You're gonna have to retune that guitar the next time. Yeah. Like. Even something that is tuned so perfectly into the middle way eventually starts to give. Yeah. And that's what we have to remind ourselves that even if we live life in the middle way, there's going to be things on a day-to-day basis that are going to force us to kind of steer in the other directions. And we just have to bring ourselves back to that observer, non-attachment mindset of, am I steering too far to the left? Am I veering down to the other lane? Maybe like I'm about to crash into other people. Yeah. I was recently listening to a podcast from Michael Mead. He was talking about the equinox, the spring equinox, and he was talking about our modern concept of balance. Mm -hmm. And, like, our modern concept of balance, it's pretty static, like, where we think it's, like, perfection, all that. But really, he's like, the word balance, it comes from this idea of scales, right? And they always do. And they're teeter-tottering. Yeah, they're never never static. Ever. And so it's, it's a constant readjusting to the middle way, to that mm-hmm. balance. And so we know, if, I think we get so attached in our society to this concept of, like, having to be perfect all the time. Mm-hmm. And Buddhism really shows that, like, that's not something you want to strive for because it's impossible to reach. Instead, let's take these actions... These little things we could do to adjust the scales. Back and forth. And it's a Back constant effort. It's mm-hmm. constant. It is. It's a constant thing that we have to strive for. Um, so then the next one is right livelihood, which I really like. It's having the right occupation in life that does not harm others and ourselves, earning a living in a way that honors ourselves and others. And I have it as also as lifestyle, right? Mm. Because to me, livelihood is also a part of your lifestyle. So it's like, what are those repeated habits, the virtues, the vices, the repeated thoughts, the repeated words, actions, repeated, you know, all of this. So the way I have it, sorry, repeated habits lead to virtues. Those repeated thoughts lead to words and actions that then lead to habits that then lead to the lifestyle, Mm -hmm. right? And so now you've created this lifestyle based on an erroneous point of view, on an erroneous thinking, and like you're on these extremes and you're living out a lifestyle based on these extremes, which we can kind of start talking about, you know, some of like addiction and such in that regard, Mm -hmm. because you've gone to that extreme now. That's just how you live life. Mm -hmm. And it's how do we get back into that soul connection? And again, this isn't part of Buddhism. I'm going to re-clarify that. This is me, Marcella, making that connection of how do we get back to that, right? To the teeter-tottering of balance. Like lifestyle to me is just how I'm going to exist. Yes, how I'm going to live my life. Mm-hmm. And when I'm maybe stuck in a job that isn't for me, Am I going to become this angry person and be resentment? Or can I find a way of a middle ground where I can eventually maybe start making myself way out of it and find a right livelihood that now creates a a lifestyle that's a little bit better for me? So, But until I can go through all of this, I I may just end up staying at that job because of that identity that I've attached because I told people this is what I wanted to do. I think you could also use right view and right thinking a little bit of wisdom to reframe your livelihood absolutely right like to really see like okay but this is helping others in such a way like you know like oh if you're working at mcdonald's you know you're like how can i have right livelihood if i don't value my job Mm -hmm. right um like this is just a transition reframe it like a lot of people in our society like 
look down mm-hmm. at wage workers, mm-hmm. right? So you, you got to use your wisdom, the right thinking and right view to reframe it in a way and look for the ways in which you are helping others. Right. And I mean, and this, even helping me, this yourself. is like a really good, like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like internal moral compass. Yes. Like uh, my choices in jobs um, typically kind of always fall under right livelihood. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not always the best earning jobs. Same. <laughs> typically. Same. But um, I, I do, I mean, for me, working is very much a part of my I, my life and my identity. And I want a occupation. I want a career that really highlights helping others. Mm-hmm. And the helping professions just don't, they don't make a lot of money. They're not valued as much, I guess. But um, right livelihood, if you're working at a job and you're miserable, um, see what you could do with right view and right thinking reframing and then if it's and then still, maybe that reframing allows you to now embrace it as that temporary as a right? temporary and thing, then you're right? like that's what i really want is that so yeah. okay maybe i'm going to start working towards that and evolving and learning yeah. and growing and you're right your lifestyle does get you there mm-hmm. right like if you are at a job that is unsatisfactory like your lifestyle outside of that job you can align your lifestyle in a way to point you in the direction Absolutely. of the career you Dude, want. Dude, I started as a, at an El Pollo Loco crew member, oh. cashiering. I started at Domino's Pizza. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's, that's typical. It's very... Okay, and then we have um, moving on to, like, how we can cultipla- culti- contemplate? Cultivate. cultivate. Cultivate, thank you. Discipline and meditation, we move into right effort, Right mindfulness and right meditation, the last three of the five. And and on mine for right effort, I also have right spiritual effort. And I know that's, you know, obviously not encompassing those that maybe are not spiritual even right now. Because there's a lot of agnostics and a lot of um, atheists out there currently. And so, you know... It's, it is connecting more to the right effort and the right endeavor of having, I love the way that Master Ko says, is having that constancy of aim and effort, right? And it's always got to be guided by intelligence and tempered with loving kindness. Yeah. And that's similar to what I have here. I'll add that it's cultivating sincere discipline, but not overdoing it. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I love that. Once again, finding that balance, that middle way. Right. Because once you create... You, you go to the extreme, you get back into attachment. Yeah. It's like, right. I have to meditate for an hour every day. Otherwise, I'm not okay. Yeah. And it's no, like, well, you might dude. be overdoing it. Yeah. Like, why do you feel the need to meditate for an hour every day? Is that your ego? Are you avoiding something? Like, Are you, exactly. You might, you might need a little flexibility. Now, what I really like about right mindfulness is that, um, and right meditation is that we can find mindfulness in meditation and like our everyday things. We don't always have to sit in meditation. There are mm-hmm. other ways that we can practice it. Mm-hmm. So right mindfulness is true contemplation where the mind is pure, aware, and does not give rise to unwholesome thoughts. So unwholesome thoughts, basically like the negative thoughts or the thoughts that cause suffering. And it's cultivating the habit of gently monitoring and shaping mental content. Mm-hmm. All right, and so washing dishes can become a mindful activity mm-hmm. because when we are doing things that don't require a lot of our cognitive function, we're just doing like repetitive, um, automatic things. Like driving can be that way. We tend Absolutely. to like fill our mind with thoughts because our mind wants to think, and so we can get to a point where we're like, oh, we're having this thought that's totally unrelated to washing dishes. That's a like, that's a little signal post, signpost. Like, yeah. oh, you're not being present. You're not being right. in the moment. And we could be, practice mindfulness walking. We can practice mindfulness eating. We can practice mindfulness yes. um, cleaning. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, it, it's building consciousness, right, and, and yeah. building awareness. Because for most of us, we're just kind of waiting for physical forces to kind of input move us. move us make us feel make trigger us right we're waiting for we're like wanting to wait to react to sensors coming into our yeah, peripheral I think, yeah, Instead, you brought it up and it's that that you're just asleep 
Well, it's funny because you brought up like your biological self, the biological body. Like we are, because we are alive just by the very nature of being alive and having the sense organs that we have, like we're built to respond to stimuli. Autonomously too. Right. Yeah. So it's like we're kind of, when we are practicing the Eightfold Path, we're trying to bring our consciousness which and is our, our animal self together. Together, yes. Where I like, like that they're they're living in harmony. Where we're not always just reacting from our reptilian brain or on mm-hmm. autopilot. And then if we're conscious all the time, we're never going to get anything done. Right. You know what I mean? Like if right. we're always conscious and like in blissed out or in zen or whatever, you can't physically act. You're not going to be able to do your day to day things. Exactly. And so I think that's. I mean, that's what Buddha experienced, right? Mm-hmm. He he went from a life of privilege mm-hmm. and like enjoying all the sensory things that life has to offer many wives um, music food everything um to the nines and then he went to the complete opposite he went to aestheticism mm-hmm. he pretty much restricted eating and was starving and and he realized that's not the way either right we're taking our animal self that is that sensory being and then we're taking our consciousness and we're combining the two to be more mindful. Which I feel in the evolution of the human species is the part of our brain that we still have yet to understand. Mm-hmm. It's that part of our brain that has developed so quickly over the last few thousands of years mm-hmm. that we're still, it's still such a f- damn mystery to everyone. Yeah. And it's like we're trying to marry all of that together because it brings in so much mysticism. It's that part of the brain that's just like, creates the mysticism i feel like yeah in my interpretation of the way i see the three different stages of our brain right the reptilian brain and then i forget the the other one and then mm-hmm. middle brain the middle brain and the one bringing in consciousness yeah. and then just like the prefrontal cortex yeah so it's like like what you're saying right now it's marrying our evolution like mm-hmm. i feel like we're at a point in our time and our understanding because maybe 2500 years ago they were starting to experience um, way before that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. This is obviously thousands and thousands and thousands of years of people really trying to figure this stuff out because our brain, who knows how long ago, developed this front cortex. Yeah. And it's just yeah. like, how do we bridge all of that? And I feel like Buddha put it so perfectly of the right oneness of I am a being of light, not I am, how can I say this? I am a being of light. I'm not the body, I'm not the thoughts, I'm not the emotions. I am just this being of light. Maybe Buddha didn't put it this way, but it's just understanding of this transcendental connection that we don't understand. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't care to understand. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter because your work is right here. It's the actions, it's the effort, it's how you live, it's who you say you are, it's how you interact with other people, it's the words that you say to other people. Like mm-hmm. that's what matters now because we as human beings chose to develop speech we chose to develop the way that we did and now it's like we have this existence how do we make it a cohesive not a cohesive a a balanced existence where we can all live in this middle ground and stop going to extremists because let's think of when buddha existed again Mm -hmm. it was during the time of alexander the great what was going on around that time it was nothing but like countries being conquered and people dying in constant war Mm -hmm. right of course people wanted to find some sort of like nirvana where they didn't feel like they were being persecuted or you know you either lived really well or you lived really like not well you Mm -hmm. were super super poor there was no rule there was no true middle ground in that era so it's like we now have that Mm -hmm. there is middle ground you're not either super super rich or super super poor if you can utilize all this to create this lifestyle mindset thinking words speech you can find that middle ground of existing as a human being. And in that, I feel like it inspires others to live in that middle ground. Well, there are people who are super poor still. <laughs> no, I agree with that. No, 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 I agree. Like, I'm not saying are, it doesn't I mean, there exist. Are, there are like still stratifications. I'm within, not saying it doesn't exist. Of course society. it exists. It's because of, you know, yeah. absolutely it's but I, I do, going back to what Thich Nahan said about how for us to get out of these dangerous situations as humans and our in our humanity, mindfulness needs to be practiced collectively. And can you imagine the way our world would look if our leaders 
if um, like our political leaders, our thought leaders, if they adhered or attempted to practice the middle way, mm-hmm. like how different would the world look? Um, I do think, you know, like people just get attached to some dangerous thoughts and they ultimately get expressed. Mm-hmm. So. I agree. So I feel like, um, oh man, 59 minutes. Yeah, we're there. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to cut it here. So that is the Eightfold Path. If you're curious to learn more, I recommend Alan Pito's website, A-L-A-N-P-E-T-O. Um, he has a very like accessible website and handouts and a bunch of cool stuff. And this stuff. book that you've yeah. been reading I, as I well. I love this book, The Heart of Buddha's Teaching, Transforming Suffering into Peace, Joy, and Liberation by the um, lovely Vietnamese Buddhist Thich Nhat Hanh. May he rest in peace. Um, he passed away recently a year or two ago. Uh, but this is a very great book. Also very accessible for anyone's reading level. Okay, so we're going to end with um, pulling a card from Starseed's Wisdom for Spiritual Growth by Nari Anastasia. <gasps> and so okay. far, each single card pull has been very cohesive with the message that we've delivered. Um, I feel like we do a very good job with opening up the space when we sit down to record and yeah. we invite in right speech and yeah. right thoughts. We do. Um, so this is uh, hopefully right action being put into practice. I we love how have. we get to tie in the Eightfold Path oh. everywhere. The card I pulled is titled Truth, See Your Light, Know Your Power, Have the Courage to Walk Your Truth. Fantastic. That's a beautiful one to end the fourth noble truth, which is the Eightfold Noble Path. With well, thank that, you for joining us, Space Baby. Thank you. We will see you guys next time for part three of Spirituality and Buddhism. Stay yes. tuned. Ciao. We loved having you on board this episode. Join us next time as we set course on all things spiritual, psychological, and astrological. Follow and rate us wherever you hear this transmission. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at The Grounded Space Cadets. Until next time, take care and be well, space babies.